Hi, this is Ben Lola, back to the Bible Canada. How does Jesus teach us to pray? In today's study, we'll learn about the disciples' prayer, part one, from Matthew chapter 6, verses 7 to 15. So let's begin as we continue Dr. Newfeld's series, The Greatest Sermon Ever Preached. Today we've come to one of the most well-known passages in the Bible. It's traditionally been called the Lord's Prayer. This prayer is probably the most repeated prayer in history. It's been set to countless different musical scores, and it's been sung as a part of worship services for centuries. For all of us who struggle to know how to pray, this passage is intended as a teaching manual. If you want to learn how to pray, a close study of this passage gives any novice an insight into how to pray. Let's read the entire passage, Matthew 6, 7-15. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard by their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Well, you've probably guessed today we're going to be talking about prayer and praying. What should we pray for, and how should we address God? What are the proper attitudes we should bring into our prayer time? There's a lot to talk about today, so much so that I've decided to take this matter of the Lord's Prayer and spread it out over two broadcasts. See, the story is told of a little boy who is saying his prayers at bedtime. He prayed this way, Lord, please bless mommy and daddy. And then he paused and said with the loudest voice he could muster, and give me a new bicycle. And his mom said, son, God's not hard of hearing. And the boy said, I know, I know, but grandma's in the next room and, and she is. See, how many of you know that, that prayer's an interesting thing? It's not always what it appears to be. We saw yesterday that prayer sometimes has absolutely nothing to do with God and can be about our own self-promotion. Prayer can be about many things, and fascinatingly enough, not everyone who prays is close to God. See, I've noticed that Jesus spent more time warning us about wrong motives when we pray than he actually spent time encouraging us to pray. Here's what Jesus knew, that prayer, like every other human activity, is filled with traps and temptations and pride, misunderstanding false motives, greed, and even wanting God to bless our evil deeds. Prayer is something used to blunt our conscience so we can feel wonderful about doing things that are profoundly evil. I mean, think of all the suicide bombers who have prayed before their mission. Think about the religious teachers who had Jesus crucified, evil men known for their prayers. I've talked to many a couple who are having sex out of wedlock and who have said to me, We've prayed about this, and we deeply sense that God is blessing us. Prayer can simply lead to self-deception. Indeed, prayer can be the most godless thing that any human being can do. Are you shocked to hear me say that? Well, Jesus would agree. Think of how he mocked the prayers of the self-righteous publican 
who in his prayer recounted the ways that he was better than others. Think of how he exposed the hypocrisy of the Pharisees who made their flactories broad and their prayer fringes long. He heaped scorn on such things. Of course, stating things that way can be misleading. In the culture in which Jesus lived, everyone prayed. That's why Jesus spent more time warning about the traps in prayer than encouraging people to pray. Most people prayed in Jesus' culture. See, in our culture, prayer is notably absent. In more than one study, it's been found that many ministers don't even find time for a few minutes of prayer every day. They just don't know how and have never seen it modeled. Many Christians, when they're honest enough to confess it, say that their prayers are almost non-existent. But that's just the point. Just because people prayed in Jesus' day and people don't pray in our day doesn't make the people in Jesus' day any closer to God than those who are alienated from God in our day. Now, Jesus did encourage people to pray. Luke 18 verse 1 says, And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. They ought always to pray. Jesus insisted on that. And a quick study of Jesus' teaching on prayer can be quite revealing. Notice simply from the book of Luke how often he insists on prayer. In Luke 6.28, Jesus encouraged his followers to pray for those who persecute them. Then in chapter 10, verse 28, he tells them to pray earnestly that the Lord would send out laborers into the harvest. And in chapter 11, he insists on persistence in prayer. The parable of the unrighteous judge in Luke 18 is told to encourage persistent prayer. And of course, in Gethsemane, he wants to know why they would not stay praying for him for even one hour. And then he insists that they pray earnestly that they might not enter into temptation. So don't get me wrong. When I said that Jesus has many warnings about wrong motives in prayer, Jesus also knew that a life devoid of prayer is a life on empty. It's a life without a power source. It's like pushing your car down a road, never realizing what a motor can do for you. Some of you are living that way. Everything you ever do is because of your exertion and not because of the one by whom all things are possible. See, prayer, if done rightly, will fuel your walk with God. If you don't pray, you don't know God. Furthermore, James 4 verse 2 says that we do not have many things, things that God would even want to give us for one reason. It's because we don't ask. We don't bend the knee and come before God, making our request to him. God knows that there are some things he will withhold from us. For if he were to give them to us without our asking for them, we would assume that the reason for this blessing is because of us and not because of God's gracious hand. Prayer is intended to make us dependent on God and by these means to drive us into intimacy with him and make us deeply thankful for his provision. There is a motivation to pray. Some of you right now have something lacking in your life that your heavenly Father would love to give you, but you will never get it until you learn to ask him both in faith and with a humble and yielded heart. Check it out, James 4, verse 2. But then the very next verse warns us that when we ask, we ask with wrong motivation. And so our prayers, even while prayers are necessary, can simply be an extension of our evil self-serving desires. That's why we need not only to be encouraged to pray, 
but we need also be instructed how to pray. And that's where this amazing Lord's Prayer comes in. It is, if you will, the foundation of all successful praying. Learn this prayer well, and you will have both the motivation to pray and the guidance needed to prevent you from falling into all of those traps where prayer can become only an exercise in our own ego development. Now let's start with verse 7. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases like the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard because of their many words. Isn't it an amazing irony that before Jesus teaches us how to pray in the passage we call the Lord's Prayer, he prefaces it with a warning against meaningless repetition in praying. Let me ask you the obvious. Is there any prayer in history that has been so often meaninglessly repeated than this prayer? In some religious circles, people have been encouraged in one sitting to simply say the Lord's Prayer two, three, four times in a row and even more. I can't help but think that the words become a kind of a mantra, almost viewed as a spiritual kind of magic. Repeat the words often enough and you're going to be all right. Jesus never said that these words were to be repeated thousands of times. How do I know? Well, he said so. Indeed, the actual prayer itself, even if we say the words quite slowly and very deliberately, only take about 30 seconds at most to repeat them. Furthermore, this thing about praying. The Pharisees, as we learned last week, prayed so that they could be observed by others. Others pray lengthy prayers, thinking these prayers are the most effective kind of praying. Think about this in biblical history. Elijah spends the day with the priests of Baal, who are shouting toward heaven during physical gyrations. 1 Kings 18 records them praying from early morning until noon. Then when Elijah mocked them, the text says, they raved on, screaming and shouting until the end of the day. And in response, Elijah prayed about 20 seconds and the fire of God fell. Don't get me wrong. I'm not opposed to lengthy prayers, but neither should we be impressed by them. Length is not the issue. Fervency is not the issue. How loud you pray is not the issue. Some people in prayer scream at the devil in order to get God to do their bidding. They think this kind of praying is especially effective. Learn the Lord's Prayer well, and you'll be cured of this kind of folly. Prayer is such an important and essential part of our walk with God. It's no wonder that Jesus spends the time teaching us how to do it right. Many of us struggle in our prayer life. For example, we neglect to find the time to pray or perhaps lack confidence to pray. But whatever the issue may be, Jesus wants to direct our minds and hearts into the right motivation for prayer. After the break, Dr. Neufeld helps us understand more about what the disciples' prayer teaches us. Since 1957, Back to the Bible Canada has provided excellent and trustworthy Bible teaching for Canadians. Our efforts have helped transform the lives of thousands of Canadians from coast to coast to coast. In this new year, perhaps you'd consider joining our ministry team as a monthly partner. Our monthly donor program, the 1119 Fellowship, provides sustainable support to all the Bible teaching and engagement ministries of Back to the Bible Canada. Consider how you might invest in these efforts as people of all ages and stages of life open their lives up to discover more about Jesus in the pages of the Bible. 
Your partnership in 2021 will provide the opportunity to sustain and expand the reach of Bible teaching across Canada and beyond. To learn more about the 1119 Fellowship Program, the benefits of joining, and to become a member, visit backtothebible.ca slash fellowship or give us a call at 1-800-663-2425. Listen, God already knows what you need. You don't have to shout at him as if he were your hard-of-hearing grandma in the next room. But again, when I say these things, I fear I'll be misunderstood. What greater fervency will you find than that of Jesus in the garden, sweating drops of blood? Or him asking, could you not pray for one hour as if one hour was a very short period of time in prayer? or his frequent habit of spending all night in prayer, it's been rightly pointed out that if the Son of God thought such praying to be necessary for himself, how can we think that praying less can suffice? Well, true enough, consistent, persistent, and fervent praying is our calling. See, when the apostles were told in Acts 6 that a problem had developed in the church in which certain Greek widows were being unjustly treated, they responded by saying, We must devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. In that case, others were appointed to deal with this problem, but the duty of studying and teaching scripture, along with a devotion to prayer, must not be interrupted. I think a great many churches have not safeguarded their pastors in this regard simply because they have not seen the value of persistent praying. And by the way, when praying is put back into a position of prominence, When we see it as the lungs of the church and as the lifeblood of every single Christian, it is with this worldview that we approach the Lord's Prayer with greater interest. Now, before we get into the details, I need to make a comment on the title we often give to this prayer. See, I have no difficulty in calling this prayer the Lord's Prayer, but in truth, this is probably not what it should be called. It probably should be called the Disciples' Prayer. That's because this prayer is not really the prayer of Jesus, but rather Jesus is instructing us how to pray. It's a model for our praying. I've often wondered why the prayer of Jesus recorded in John 17, often called the high priestly prayer, hasn't been called the Lord's Prayer. That's because the prayer in John 17 gives us a demonstration of Jesus praying for us. The prayer in Matthew 6 shows us how we should be praying. So let me begin by asking this. Do you pray? Do you have problems in praying? Would you like to learn to pray more effectively? Would you like to have someone teach you how to pray? Then let Jesus teach you. According to Jesus, prayer starts with the words, Our Father in heaven. That's not to say that all prayers must use those words. No, there's something else here. The words, Our Father in heaven, are so utterly simple, and yet if you think about what you're saying, This itself will transform your prayer life. Notice how God is addressed in at least two ways. He is in heaven. Now, that's not to say that he's not also on earth. God is everywhere present. None of us at any time have ever been out of his presence. For as David says, where can I flee from your presence? And as Paul says, in him we live and we move and we have our being. God is as present to us on earth as he is present in heaven. So why do we pray to God who is in heaven? And the idea is that God is seated in the place of honor and power and authority. 
He's the ruler of all. So when we pray, we should try to remember to whom we are praying. He is the one who is highly exalted. Let me give you an example of this. Several years ago on a Sunday morning, I woke up only to realize that we had had a dump of snow the night before. The roads were covered in wet and heavy and very slippery snow, and it was quite easy to get stuck. On my way to church, I poured out my complaint before God. God, why can't we have snow like this on Monday or Tuesday, I said. Is it because you think too many people are in church already that you send snowfall on a Saturday night so most people are going to stay at home? I was in a bad mood, and I thought I'd talk to God in a cheeky fashion. I hardly ever say this about my prayer life, but as I was pouring out my complaint to God on that day, I almost sensed God's response. Will you, a mere man, question my governance of the universe? You know, I was struck with my arrogance, and I became almost terrified. Who did I think I was addressing? I was speaking to the one before whom heaven and earth flee. I was addressing the one who sits enthroned above the cherubim. I was acting like I was telling an equal what he should be doing. I repented and thanked God for sending his son to pay for my sins of a man who in his arrogance would reduce God to someone like myself. Our Father in heaven, what weighty words when we think of the one who is enthroned in eternal splendor and glory. And yet here now is the second almost contradictory truth. We are addressing him as Father. The Greek is the word Abba. It's what a child would call his father, Daddy. I called my earthly father, Papa. It's a term that expresses both relationship and intimacy. You know, a number of years ago, I met a man who asked me if my father's name was also John, and I said it was. He told me that his own father had died when he was very young, and that a certain John Newfeld had been his mentor when he was a young carpenter, and that this John Newfeld had become both his mentor and his second father. You know, in short order, we found out that this man he was talking about was indeed my dad. My father had taken time with a, with a young carpentry apprentice and unknown to me, had taken him under his wing and not only taught him the trade, but poured out his love into him. And I remember thinking about this. I didn't know this man or anything about my dad's role in this man's life. I wondered what other things I didn't know about my dad. Even though I had a loving and intimate relationship with my dad, how much about him did I really know? And that's the same with God. All believers have an intimacy with God, a relationship that knows him, and all the while acknowledging that there is a vastness and a grandeur and a might and a power and a wisdom of this God who rules the heavens that I have but a glimmer of. By the way, that's what happens when we begin to study theology. You know, soon we learn about God's independent self-existence, that he is a non-contingent being. We learn that he is self-sufficient, that he not only does not change, but he cannot change. We learn that he is eternal and timeless in his own being. We learn of his foreknowledge. We learn he doesn't have a body but a spirit and is present to all spaces at all times and yet does not have spatial dimensions. We learn that he is at the same time just and wise and loving and holy, and truthful, and righteous, and jealous, and filled with wrath and all-knowing. We learn that he is triune, Father, Son, and Spirit. We begin to learn the difference between person and being, and find ourselves wondering at what that might mean. This is the God who rules over all, and yet this God who sits enthroned in the heavens invites his children 
to run into his arms and to cry, Papa, Daddy. And if you ask us if we know him, we will all say we do. He is our Father who is in heaven. See, I find that many people err on one of those two dimensions when they pray. They either fall into the error of being chummy with God and so never tremble in his presence, or they become so theological they never express personal intimacy of a child running into daddy's arms. But it's this combination of these two things that is altogether dizzying. All true prayer is an amazing mystery, a profound simplicity and intimacy that we will never comprehend. Jesus says, begin this way, our Father who is in heaven. So let's learn how to pray. Let's learn that the veil in the temple has been torn into, inviting those of us who know Christ to enter into the Holy of Holies with boldness. After all, he may be a great king, but even great kings have children who run to them and sit with him on the throne and find themselves shouting in joy that daddy always welcomes us. Then let's also remember that our daddy is the great king. And so Jesus, with these simple words, our father who is in heaven, tells us how our prayer life is to be constructed. Join me next week as we talk about how to pray. Heavenly Father, I pray, O Lord God, may through our understanding of this prayer, may we learn more deeply to love you and to pray more fervently in Jesus' name. John, I think it would be safe to say that there's a special place in most Christians' hearts for the Lord's Prayer. But how are we to look at the Lord's Prayer? Is the Lord's Prayer a more special prayer? Or what is it about the Lord's Prayer? How should we identify it? Well, you know, Ben, I love the times when I've been to church and uh, and where we've repeated the Lord's Prayer together. I mean, there is a special aspect of that prayer. But I do know that the prayer itself can in some ways incite a kind of idolatry. Like this is the only way that I pray, rather than viewing the Lord's Prayer as Christ coming alongside of us and mentoring us as we pray. So, you know, that's where we've really been trying to address the issue here, that all of us need help in our praying And our Lord and Savior is coming along and saying, can I pray with you? Would you like me to show you how to pray more effectively? And that's really the issue behind it. So whereas I I guess I have a soft spot for repeating it, yet I do think that's the purpose of it. I hope and pray that today's message has encouraged you to center your prayer life on a right understanding of the Father who desires for us to seek Him for all things. Don't miss next week's program as Dr. Neufeld continues to teach us part two of the Disciples' Prayer in our series, The Greatest Sermon Ever Preached. Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. As we enter a new year, We want to begin by expressing a sincere thank you to all those who so graciously supported Back to the Bible Canada's year-end ministry campaign. Your gift in December was critical to launching the ministry into the new year. So on behalf of Dr. John Newfeld, Phil Calloway, In Doubt, and the entire Back to the Bible Canada ministry team, thank you. What you do is essential to the mission of this organization. As we enter a new year, please continue to pray for this ministry. And if Back to the Bible Canada is an important part of your spiritual walk with Jesus, and you believe in the mission of Bible teaching, 
please consider continuing your financial support or becoming a monthly partner. Call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.